All right, you just pray with me for a second. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, Lord. We ask for mercy, Lord. We ask for abundance of life. We ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lord, in each one of our hearts and minds, not just now, but throughout the day, God, we need you. We need you, Jesus, to be our teacher here today through the person of the Holy Spirit. And we ask for that, Lord, for that, that grace which you are delighted to give us, Lord, because you're a good Father and you give good gifts, Lord. So I come at this time to you, ask for mercy, Lord. Amen. Amen. Um, so a question to start with. By the way, you've got a handout. Um, the reason I've done that, I've, I've got quite a few quotes that I'm going to be including in this session and the next. It's kind of one message. I'm, I'm actually heading towards a, quite a simple story at the end of the day, but it's going to take a while to, to kind of work my way towards that. So what I've done is I've included all of the quotes. Anytime I read a quote from a book uh, or a catechism or whatever, it'll be in, in the notes so that we don't have to be looking at slides. You can just uh, follow along in your handout. So um, you'll see on the top there, what is the chief end of man? Somebody tell me. Man's chief end is? Glorify God. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So, uh, so about a month ago, I was, uh, I was trying to watch a little video on my computer which someone had taken on their phone and emailed to me. I was trying to actually show it to my, my son. Uh, my son Luke is 10 years old. And there was something wrong with this video and it kept sticking. And in the end, I got so frustrated with Luke just standing behind me wanting to watch this thing. And I blurted out, ah, oh, this video is corrupt. To which I immediately heard a response from Luke behind me saying, in every part of its being. <laughs> now... You may think that's a very strange little story for me to start with, but the, the purpose of that story will become clear as we progress. Um, I want to think a little bit about the, the Great Commission. Um, my topic today is Christian education within the local church, building a curriculum and approaching a, um, a kind of systematic theological education program in your churches. So let's think about the Great Commission for a second. Um, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20... In those words of Jesus, um, in the Greek, there is only one imperative verb. Um, th the English translation doesn't bring that out. Um, it's, it's the word mathetusete. Uh, that's uh, mathetes in Greek is a, is a disciple. And so mathetusete, that Greek imperative means you, plural. We know singular plural in Greek verbs, which is nice. You, plural, make disciples. That is the the only imperative in the Great Commission. And that is done through three uh, participles. A participle, as you will remember from a trick English, is an ing verb. Three participles. Going, while going. A present tense participle in Greek has, the, has an ongoing aspect, which means while. While going, make disciples. And then two other participles follow. Baptizing and teaching. Um, so, we are to make disciples. The primary role of ministers is to make disciples. And we are to do that using three means. By going, that's church planting, that's missionary endeavor. By baptizing, that's evangelism, that's being faithful to the sacraments, that's baptizing people into a local church. 
Big discussion that baptizing into a local church. And then once someone has been reached, baptized into a local church, that last participle is the main ongoing duty of the church in making disciples, which is teaching. Teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. Now, um, a question for you. How is it that you and your church are being faithful to make disciples of the people that you lead? Um, if, a, if a disciple is someone who truly knows God and whose entire life is surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ from Monday to Sunday, someone who is mature in the faith, established in the faith, then what is it that you as a church are doing? Uh, you know, what means are you employing in order to create that kind of growth and maturity in the people that you lead? Um, what kinds of disciples are we producing? And I, I think it's a great question. Tomo put it this way in a meeting we had a couple of months ago. He said, look over your shoulder and see who's following you. A good challenge. Um, and then an equally important question follows from that. What kind of disciples are you producing? But then we've got to ask a methodological question. What does disciple making look like in your church? Because here in Matthew chapter 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus says that the primary means by which the church is to make disciples of people after they've been converted and baptized into a local church is by teaching them. Now, let nothing I say today give you the impression that I don't believe that relationships are important or that non-doctrinal time together is not important or that, you know, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice is not important or sharing meals together, sharing life together. And in fact, we see that in the life of Jesus as he's discipling these 12 men. But my topic of discussion today is how a high view of Scripture and its power to transform us is essential to those who would be ministers in the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, I think every minister has to appreciate the importance of doctrine. And a systematic doctrinal instruction program or process or strategy that that is a necessity for every minister. We must have a high view of the power of a certain body of truth that God has revealed to men in a book to bring godly change to people's lives and to their families. Um, now, without getting ahead of myself, uh, I, I just want to correct a potential error uh, and a potential misunderstanding right up front. When I refer to a systematic doctrinal education program for your church. I am not referring to what people hear on a Sunday morning. Because for most churches, what is preached on a Sunday morning is not strategically designed over the long term to cover the whole counsel of God or this body of teaching that was once and for all delivered to the saints. That body of foundational teaching that, that is the structure of biblical revelation. Sunday sermons are, are not designed to cover that over a period of time. Often we're preaching through a topical series in our church, or maybe the pastor is responding to a certain need within their church or within their, their community, and that's right and proper. A pastor must have the freedom to do that from his pulpit. 
And even when we are preaching expository sermons through books of the Bible, which I think you should do at least once a year in your church, you know, even when you are preaching through a book of the Bible, there are 65 other books of the Bible that add to this, this scaffolding of the basic structure of biblical revelation. Sunday services, Sunday you know, morning sermons simply do not provide the time to be able to deliver a systematic teaching of the great doctrines of the Bible. It's not possible. Um, and how those doctrines all relate to one another within a single unfolding story of redemptive history. And so a high view of the power of doctrine and of biblical truth to change people's lives, to transform them into disciples of Jesus Christ, will require, in my view, a far more strategic, and dare I say it, programmatic way of teaching theology to people. We can't just leave it to the pastor on a Sunday morning. There has to be a programmatic approach to theological education. And this is exactly what we see happening throughout church history. So what I want to do in this first session, as I'm sort of working my way up to building my case today, is I want us to take a little journey into the past together. And we're going to pick the story up in the 16th and 17th century Reformation, during the, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, when the, the Reformers, when they gained control of a city, and remember in those days there was one of only two churches. You were either part of the, this blossoming Reformed church in a city, which was then supported by the, the, the government, the city council, or you were a member of the Catholic Church, um, laying aside the Eastern Orthodox Church for a second. When the reformers got control of a city and influence over the city council, which always came along with that, like a German in the, uh, sorry, Luther in the German states, for example, or uh, Ulrich Zwingli in... Um, uh, not Geneva, the other uh, uh, Swiss city, Zurich. Zwingli in Zurich, or, or Kelvin in Geneva, or John Knox in Edinburgh, or the, Puritan, the Puritans in, in, uh, in England, you know, when they chopped Charles I's head off in the 17th century, and they got control of England for that eight-year period where they had a, a parliament. And it was during that eight years that they had the, the great Westminster Assembly. Whenever the Puritans got, sorry, the Reformers got control of a city, during the Reformation, the first thing they always did was draft a statement of faith. Every single one of them. You go and look. This is a great book uh, for reference purposes, and I, I may refer to it back and forth. It's called Confessions and Catechisms of the Reformation. And it's just a sampling of some of the confessions that were developed during that time. Zwingli's, Luther's, the, etc. Um... So some of the, the documents developed in that time, uh, the Lutheran Book of Concord, which I'll actually have a word to you about just now, Calvin's Genevan Conf Confession, and then when the French churches across the border started reforming, Calvin himself actually wrote a confession of faith called the French Confession for them. The Scots Confession, which uh, John Knox apparently wrote in five days, it's quite a feat. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith produced by the Westminster Assembly. Uh, the 39 Articles of the Church of England, and we could go on. And, and if you've read any of those fantastic uh, documents of faith, statements of faith, you'll know that we're talking about more than 
the 10 bullet point, like what we believe on the about page of our website. These were substantial documents. So here's an example. So that is the, the Augsburg Confession written by Philip Melanchthon shortly after the death of... Actually, he wrote it while Luther was still alive. It was adopted in the Book of Concord just after Luther died. So, I mean, we're talking, you know, 40, a 40-page 40 statement of faith for the Lutheran churches. They were comprehensive summaries of the major doctrines of biblical revelation, the major doctrines of the Christian faith, the scaffolding, as, as, as it were, the, 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 or the foundation stones of the major revelatory points of the Bible. Um, and they were designed, they were drafted in order to be able to make disciples of people by teaching them what the major structural theological blocks of the Bible are. Uh, they were designed to answer the question, what is it that we believe? What do we believe? And, and the reason they did this, the, the reason the reformers were so zealous on this matter was because they wanted to prevent what had just happened, what they had just come out of in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church had effectively kept people ignorant of the great doctrines of the Bible. And when the reformers had come out of that, they said, never again. This is not going to happen again. We are going to empower the people. And so they drafted these majestic statements of faith and, and, and crafted them in order to answer this question and make it publicly known. What do we believe? And these documents became the main tools for local Protestant ministers to teach new converts and children. These statements of faith were their tools for making disciples. Okay, then with these statements of faith now in their hand, having developed them, the next thing the reformers do, if you go and follow the story of each one of them, is they, they, they ask a question. Their, their question being, how do we get this into the heads and hearts of our people. It's one thing having a great statement of faith that you've worked out. Now how do, we, how do we get this into the heads and hearts of the people we are leading? And that is an incredibly important question. And I think the first answer that we, we must give to that question is we cannot get it into the hearts of our people. Only the Holy Spirit can open someone's heart... To understand and to embrace for themselves the great truths of the Bible. And it's here on this point that there is now a temptation to disregard theology and to disregard doctrine, doctrinal instruction, because perhaps we can see it as just dead letters on a page, you know, formulations of men which represent nothing but like a stale, powerless orthodoxy. So there is this danger at this point, because we can't open the hearts of men and women to the truth of the Bible, that we, that we, we can somehow disregard all of this kind of doctrinal work as, as dead, as stale. But I want to remind you this morning that this 
was a principle that the reformers themselves were ever so aware of. And I want to read to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is from chapter 1, article 5 of the Westminster Confession. And you'll find this in your notes. So this was written by the 17th century Puritans. We may be moved and induced by... Now the Puritans are going to show us nine things by which the Word of God or or the Scriptures testify themselves to be the inspired Word of God. Nine things. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and, and the many other in, incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. And yet, say the Puritans, notwithstanding all of this, Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And so the reformers understood, and I trust we all understand here this morning, that it is not our job to get these truths into the hearts of our people. I'm not saying don't preach with passion. I'm not saying don't live it, don't be an Ezra. I'm just saying at the end of the day, we need to know where the responsibility lies. It is the Holy Spirit who illuminates the truth of Scripture in people's hearts. But that doesn't mean that we can't get it into their heads. And so when I I framed the question earlier, I said that the reformers were asking this question. Now that they've got these statements of faith... They ask the question, how do we get this now into the heads and hearts of our people? I purposefully asked the wrong question because I wanted to make this point. You see, that wasn't actually the reformers' question. They understood this. Their question was a simpler one. How do we get this into the heads of our people? Knowing that the Holy Spirit is the only one who can inwardly illuminate their word... They knew that the responsibility was to teach doctrine. How can we teach this body of doctrine, not just to the super keen? How do we teach this body of doctrine to every single person in our churches, from children to adults? How do we teach this? And this is the very thing that Jesus instructs us to do in the Great Commission. It's it's like a man who, who sows seed, good seed, in a field and he waters it but he can't make it grow he he goes back home at the end of of a good day's work of doing everything he can he goes to sleep and while he sleeps it is God who brings life and increase and growth to the word that he's sown to that seed he's sown you see there is this terrible question which does arise from certain sections of of the modern church that asks why should we get all this doctrine into people's heads. What good is doctrine? 
I've sat under the preaching of a very well-known South African evangelist who basically said this in front of an enormous crowd of people. Ach, people aren't interested in doctrine. I mean, that itself is a doctrinal statement. It's a stupid thing to say. Why should we get this into people's heads? Isn't all this teaching of, of formulated doctrinal statements just dead orthodoxy? Isn't it just shoving the Bible down people's throats and down our children's throats so that they, when, when they leave home they'll despise the faith? Isn't all this doctrine just powerless, spiritless? Now, in, in the face of that accusation, it, it's, it's virtually impossible for me to, to overstate my frustrations. <laughs> Um, because I think that objection betrays a fundamental and catastrophic misunderstanding of how God transforms people of how God changes people from being lost sinners all the way through to being established in the faith and disciples of Jesus Christ mature disciples because while I am a committed charismatic I still fundamentally believe that God uses truth to change people. And he does so through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what the, the Westminster Divines told us in the Westminster Confession of Faith. They said the Holy Spirit, see the Holy Spirit changes people. Yes, but he doesn't do it in a vacuum. The Holy Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. He does it. As he bears witness by and with the word in our heart. He uses means to achieve his ends. Um, a couple of years ago, a guy called Carl Truman, who's the, the professor of historical theology and church history at Westminster. He wrote a book called The Creedal Imperative. And uh, while discussing the Lutheran Book of Concord, um, he makes the following statement in that book, which I think is, is very good. The, the Book of Concord was the, the, the collection of theological documents of the, the Lutheran church that they put together shortly after Luther's death. So this is the late 16th century. It included Melanchthon's um, Augsburg Confession that I showed you earlier, together with his apology to the, the Augsburg Confession, which was kind of like a, an exegesis or an explaining of, of the confession. It included the three ecumenical creeds, which, as you know, are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And then it, it also included a couple of other documents and then Luther's two catechisms, his smaller and his larger catechism. So speaking of, of that compilation of documents, Carl Truman says this. The philosophy of these documents rests upon a vision for church life whereby the people are slowly but surely educated in the great doctrines of the faith. They are not meant to stay at the same level, at the level of knowledge they have when they first start learning, uh, listening to sermons, let alone when they are baptized. Rather, they are to grow to maturity in the faith. And an important part of that is growth in doctrinal knowledge. If you were to travel back in time and you were to managed to speak face to face to one, with one of the reformers, if you could have a conversation with John Calvin or, 
or, or Zwingli or Luther or, or maybe Richard Baxter in England or, or even some of the guys in the First Great Awakening, George Whitfield or whatever. You could speak to one of these guys and you were to ask him that question, which some sections of the church are asking, why would you want to get formulated systems of doctrine into people's heads? If you would ask a, a reformer that question, I mean, after the guy would sort of look at you quizzically and shake his head, he would say, well, because this represents the main biblical system of doctrine. The main building blocks of what the whole Bible teaches. And therefore, it is these truths which God uses through the working of the Holy Spirit to transform people into disciples. That's why. Because doctrine's important. Uh, there's a fascinating account in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, I'm going to read to you in a second. So what's happened is Ezra is called in to read from the book of the law. Maybe Deuteronomy, maybe all five books, we're not sure. And he reads from morning to lunchtime. He reads the scriptures publicly in front of a massive crowd of people in Jerusalem, which included children, by the way. So you think your, your Bible reading goes on a little bit long in, in a Sunday morning. They've got a whole morning's worth of Bible reading. And then I want to read to you what happens after that. This is verse 7 of chapter 8 of Nehemiah. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akib, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites, they helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense, and they helped the people to understand the reading. What a fascinating passage of Scripture. Here we have a group of teachers, after the reading of God's Word, going out into the crowd, who are said to have stood in their place, and helping the people to understand the sense of what they've just heard. And this is exactly what Jesus commands us to do in the Great Commission. We are to teach doctrine and its implications for life. Making disciples, according to the Great Commission, is achieved primarily by helping people understand the Scriptures. And there is a danger in our neck of the woods. When I say our neck of the woods, I mean the broader, charismatic, non-denominational world. There is this danger that um, people will look at statements of faith like this and think, well... You know, who are we? Who did they think they were to craft a statement of faith written in the words of men that, that they think help people to understand the main structure of biblical theology? Who on earth do they think they are? Who do we think we are? Surely the Bible is enough, you know? No book but the Bible. But this is in fact exactly what the Bible tells us to do. You know, and the wondrous, strange truth of it all, and Stan and I were discussing this yesterday, is that God has ordained it the way it's supposed to work, 
is that the teaching and the helping people to understand this, this structure, the scaffolding of biblical revelation, the job to help people understand the scriptures has been given to jars of clay like me and like you and like Jeshua and like Baini and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akib and, Sh- and Shabbatai and Hodiah and Messiah and Kalita and Azariah and Josabad and Hanan and Peliah. It's a glorious thing. It's incredible. Okay, I want to talk a little bit now about what the New Testament refers to in many different ways. This, this body of doctrine that seems to have been deposited in every church that was planted. This pattern of sound words, as Paul calls it. Um, there are several verses, I've listed a whole page of, of, of them for you in your, in your notes there, which indicate that, that even in the early church, there was a pattern of doctrine. And a specific strategy of how to teach it. Um, for example, Romans chapter 6 verse 17, there Paul gives thanks. And he says, uh, I want to give thanks that you have become obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching to which you were committed. Um, and again, in 2 Timothy chapter 1.13, he uses the same kind of words. He says, follow that pattern of sound words. Which you heard from me. Now what, what's a pattern? I remember my mom used to sew when I was a kid. These like tracing paper things that she used to have laid out on the, on, the, on the cloth. And then she'd cut around it and then sew it. And the tracing paper wouldn't be damaged so that it could be used on the next piece of cloth. And that the dress would be the same the next time. That's what a pattern is. It produces the same thing over and over and over again. And Paul says when he traveled, when he led, he delivered a pattern of sound words to the churches. To the Thessalonians uh, and to the Corinthians, he calls it the traditions uh, that, that you were taught by us, which I delivered to you, he says. I delivered these traditions to you like a package, delivered them to you. I was faithful to do that. Um, Another phrase that Paul uses, this is Luke's account in Acts chapter 20 when Paul called for the elders of the Ephesians church. Um, he calls it the whole counsel of God. Now, what does he mean by the whole counsel of God? Well, quite clearly, Paul could not have taught the Ephesian church in the time he was with them every single thing there is to know about God. I mean, quite clearly, what he means by the whole counsel of God was that there is a certain body of doctrine that reveals the main structure of biblical revelation, which is its center as Christ. Which people need to know to be saved and then to be established in the faith. And Paul says to the, the, the Ephesian elders, you know that I delivered that whole counsel to you. Um, elsewhere in scripture, this body of doctrine is, is variously called the way of the Lord. And it's interesting, in Acts chapter 18, I'll pick up on this later. Um, Apollos is said to have been catechized. In the way of the Lord. That's the Greek word. Katecheo. Um, it's called the gospel by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Or the word. 
Um, it's sometimes called by him the knowledge of God. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And, and it's this knowledge of God, which are, the weapons of our warfare are mighty to defend against what? Against arguments against it. It's a body of truth. Um, Paul calls it uh, the, the, the doctrine of our Savior. Of God our Savior and his letter to Titus. The writer to the Hebrews, whoever he was, calls it the foundation upon which he wants to now build the further mature doctrines of the faith. Um, uh, Peter calls it the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls it the present truth in which you are now established. That which establishes believers, this present truth. Um, John, interestingly, the Apostle John, he calls it the teaching. And he says if anybody doesn't hold the teaching, they don't have the Father or the Son. Um, and then in many places, possibly the most common term for this body of teaching in, in the New Testament is just the term, the faith. And we see that I've given a number of examples in your notes there. Um, probably the, the, the most famous example is Jude chapter 3, where, where uh, Jude says, This body of teaching, the faith, was delivered to the saints once and for all, and we must contend for it. Because the church is the ground and pillar which sustains this body of truth. It is our job to maintain its purity and to pass it on to the next generation. So that 100 years from now, when all 8 billion people in the world today are dead, that next generation still has the purity of the gospel. That's good. <clears throat> so let me just be clear about what I'm, what I'm contending here. The Bible says... That although what we need to know to be saved is relatively small, a small child can be saved. What we need to be established in the faith and to become mature disciples of Jesus Christ is much larger. And it is the teaching of this body of doctrine which Jesus tasked his church with when he said that the way we will make disciples is by teaching them all that I have commanded you. And, and, I, and I hope, I don't, I want to be gentle in, in how I do this, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. That's more than the ten bullet points on the website. It's more than that. Okay, so why do we frame doctrine in human language? Why do we create systematic formulations of doctrine and then teach them? Because we've been commanded to do so. And while we, we can't get it into people's hearts and make their hearts burn within them as, they, as the scriptures are opened, we have a responsibility. We've been commissioned by our Lord to get it into the heads of our, of our children, to teach it to our children, to our new converts, and even to the many adult members in our church who, who perhaps haven't got it yet. Okay, so if we are convinced of all of that, I've taken a long time to kind of make one point so far. If we're convinced that... That, along with the reformers, that it is a biblical thing to formulate statements of faith and then teach them. Then we are in a position to ask the next question. Okay, now that the statements of the structure are in place, what's the next question? Well, how do we now get this into their heads? And this is an incredibly important Question. Now, I run a Bible college. That's what I do at Church on Main. 
we can chat further about the Bible College and, and the function that it plays. I believe it's got an incredibly important role within a local church. But a Bible college, as great as it is, is not the answer to the problem. It's not the answer to this question. As great as the Bible college is, providing a world-class theological education at a local church level virtually for free, which is what we do, despite how good it is, it's not the answer to this question. It's not the answer to our basic Christian education program need. Why? Because only 5% of your church will ever come to a Bible college class on a Monday night. We cannot expect every member of our church and new converts and all the children in our, in our um, churches to come to multiple 8 or 10 week theology classes on a Monday night for the next 5 years as we get through the whole curriculum. It's, it's not the answer. We need something that works firstly in the home. Where parents can teach it to their children. And then we, we need something that works also in some format within the life of the local church. So that every member, every member can be taught it. And every new convert can be taught it. So, back to the reformers. How do we get this into the heads of our people? And as we look into church history, in the first three or four hundred years, Augustine's time, what did they do? Well... One of the first steps they, they took was that they got children and new converts to memorize three things. Uh, the Lord's Prayer for the devotional life, the Ten Commandments for Christian living and ethics, and the Apostles' Creed for redemptive history. They got them to memorize those three and then they had some teaching around it. That, that was their catechesis program. But then during the times of the, of the Reformation, a, a, a more comprehensive and effective teaching tools started to be used. I say started to be used, actually it was used in the first five centuries of church history and it, it fell into disfavor during the dark ages of the Catholic Church. And it was a, a, a tool that takes the statements of faith and breaks it down into a bite-sized bite manageable chunks which can be taught individually which can be expounded upon and explained, give the sense of it and then can be memorized. And of course, that tool, this interactive tool that a parent can use with the child and, some, and a pastor can use with people in his church, is called um, a catechism. And it's in a question and answer format. Um, J.I. Packer, if the name rings a bell, should do, he wrote a book with a guy called Gary Parrott in, ten, uh, in 2010 called Grounded in the Gospel, Building Believers the Old-Fashioned Way. And in that book they say this, this quote is, is in your notes. The conviction of the reformers that such catechetical work must be primary is unmistakable. John Kelvin, writing in 1548 to the Lord Protector of England, declared, Believe me, Monseigneur, the church of God will never be preserved without catechesis. The critical role of catechesis in sustaining the church continued to be apparent to subsequent evangelical trailblazers of the English-speaking world. Richard Baxter, John Owen, Charles Spurgeon, and countless other pastors and leaders saw catechesis as one of their most obvious and basic pastoral duties. If they could not wholeheartedly embrace and utilize an existing catechism, 
For such instruction, what did they do? They would adapt or edit one or would simply write their own. Interesting idea. Now, my greatest fear coming in today is that manly to share your fears. Well, I'm going to share my greatest fear with you. Was that uh, I'd come here today and I'd, I'd mention the word catechism. And just the very word would elicit a response that comes from an understandable place. Many of us are rightfully upset by what the mainline denominational churches have done over the last hundred years. The betrayal of Christ, the, the, the denial of the inerrancy of Scripture, the deadness, the, the Holy Spiritlessness of all the tradition. My fear is that I would say the word catechism and you would immediately associate that teaching tool with all of that deadness. Because it's not a common word in our circles. And in fact, for, for many people, the word catechism actually conjures up in people's minds a sort of thought of a, of a Roman Catholic brainwashing tool. And, and, and interestingly, history it tells you the opposite story. The reformers, the first thing they did, they write a statement of faith. The very next thing they do is they write a catechism in order to teach the statement of faith. And it was so effective in discipling a generation of people over that first 30 or 40 years of the Reformation that the, the Catholic Church were caught with their pants down, if we can use that expression. Uh, uh, interesting analogy. <clears throat> yeah. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Catholic Church were caught on the back foot and then they launched this thing called the Counter-Reformation which the Council of Trent was a big part of and out of the Council of Trent came then the Catholic Catechism but the reason we think it's a Catholic tool is because the Catholic Church have now faithfully been catechizing people for the last 500 years and the Protestants have all stopped doing it it's actually a Protestant tool anyway so that's kind of my fear so I just want to demystify the word catechism for you the word is a composite of two greek words kata which means down from it's a preposition and then the word echeo which means a sound where we get the, the english word echo from yeah. uh, so katecheo means a sound coming down from and in by the time the scriptures were written the word katecheo simply meant to instruct or perhaps more technically to instruct orally to instruct verbally um, Luke uses this word several times throughout his writings in his gospel and through the book of Acts. For example, in the opening words of his gospel, he says this, I'm writing to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were katechesthes. That's the aorist declension of katecheo. He says you, that you may know the things in which you were catechized, so, uh, yeah, so that you may be assured of these things in which you were instructed. So, so Theophilus had been catechized orally, and now Luke was writing to him to make sure that he was firm in those things that he had been catechized in. Um, he also uses the word in Acts chapter 18, speaking of Apollos, he says, This man, Apollos, had been instructed, your English version will probably say that's the word katechemenos, that's the same, decline, just a declined version of katecheo, which means catechized. This man had been catechized in the way of the Lord. He'd been instructed. 
Uh, yet imperfectly, Priscilla and Aquila had to kind of correct things which I think was the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Anyway, that's another uh, discussion. Paul uses the word several times throughout his writing. Most notably, this is a famous one, Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. This is a famous one because in that verse, Paul uses the word, two different declensions of the noun version of the word, to refer to both the students and the teacher. So in that verse, uh, you probably recognize it as something like this. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with the one who teaches. Well, actually, if you... If you just translate it straight using the word catechesis or catechism. The word, that would read, let the catechized share in all good things with the catechist. It's the word katechumenos and katechuntai. So this is a biblical word. Okay, I need to, I need to close um, this first session. Much of this has just been preparatory. In, in the second session, I'm, I'm going to target catechisms particularly and directly, okay? I just want to close by, by reading a quote by J.I. Packer. And, and in this book, they're, they're urging church leaders to reconsider introducing catechisms back into their church life. It's worth reading. And I say this. Many evangelical churches are in deep need of change today. The surest way forward is to carefully contemplate the wisdom of the past. We are not, as it turns out, the first ones who have ever had to wrestle with the issue of how to grow Christian communities and Christian individuals in contrary cultures. We are not the first to wonder about how to nurture faith in the living God and foster obedience to His way. It's not only contemporary church leaders who can teach us how to be relevant and effective in ministry today. We urge concerned church leaders to, in the language of Jeremiah 6.16, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. There is so much wisdom for us in the practices of those who have gone before us if we will only humble ourselves to listen and learn. One of the saddest things that happened in our non-denominational charismatic neck of the woods is because we rightfully rebelled against the deadness and liberality of the mainline denominations, unfortunately, we threw out so much good stuff when we threw out the deadness. We, we, we have this temptation to think new is better. And Packer is saying to us, just stand by the path and look. Ask for the ancient way, the good way. Sadly, too many evangelicals are like the people of Judah to whom Jeremiah spoke. We hear the counsel to look to the old paths and walk in the good way. But convinced that the newer ideas are always better than those of the ancient and good way, we stubbornly resolve, as we read at the end of Jeremiah 6, we will not walk in it. And I really hope that that won't be true of the churches of the global project. Um, after the break, we're going to then tackle catechisms more directly. Um, we've got about 10 or 12 minutes. Tom, I'm not sure you, what you want to do with the time now. I have put some group discussions questions in your notes. Maybe you want to just make a comment publicly. Maybe we'll want to leave it till the end of the second session. That's totally up to you. Maybe there is some value getting into threes and fours so that each person can share their opinion um, and if you want to use those questions as a, as a help, you're welcome to do so. What we do, we take a water break now, blue break. We come back, we have the second session, and then we hand all the questions in one go. Okay. Yeah, that'll be a nice place. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you.
Father, again, we, we're so thankful to be here, to be able to spend this time together as, as men, to discuss the great, the great calling, Lord, and the great privilege that it is to be a teacher of your word. God, you're the only perfect one here. Holy Spirit, you're the only one who can truly teach here. And we ask again for your gracious ministry amongst us. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I want to pick up from where we left off in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 in that last session. Um, that's that verse that says, let the catechized share in all good things. And that's talking about finances, share in all good things with the catechist. And commenting on that verse, Tim Keller, this is from the reading that I asked you guys to do before you came here. Um, t- Tim Keller says this. So this will be familiar to all of you. Um, He says, in other words, Paul is talking about a body of Christian doctrine, a catechism, that was taught to them by an instructor. Hear the word catechizer. Uh, And Tim Keller, if you read that thing, you'll know that he speaks quite freely about his belief in catechisms. And in fact, if you've got his book, uh, Tom gave it to me as a gift a couple of years back, called Center Church, like a big red hardcover book. Um, he speaks, there's a whole section in there on, his, on the use of catechisms. So uh, Keller says this, if we re-engage in this biblical practice in our churches, we will find again God's word dwelling in us richly. Because the practice of catechesis takes truth deep into our hearts. So we find ourselves thinking in biblical categories as soon as we can reason. What's he talking about there? He's talking about teaching catechisms to children. That if we learn a catechism as a child, we have biblical ways of thinking, paths of logic that are laid in us before we can even reason properly. In um, 1986, John Piper uh, wrote and introduced a new catechism for uh, Bethlehem Baptist. And in his introduction to that catechism that was then released to the church, he he speaks about those verses of scripture that I was referring to earlier that speak of this this body of doctrine that was delivered to to the churches, this pattern of sound teaching. And uh, speaking about those verses, Piper says this, So it appears that there was a body of authoritative instruction and even a way of teaching it in the early church. The aim of a catechism is not to be exhaustive, but to give a solid base from which to then keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He then says to his church, his church, make this catechism part of your family routine or just use it for yourself. And so what is a catechism? What's it designed to do? Unlike the Bible college that I run, a catechism is designed to lay a theological base in the lives of Christians. And then, of course, the whole ministry of the church is then to build upon that base over the next 40 or 50 years in which someone should be a member of a local church. But my fear is that in many churches within the charismatic, non-denominational big world out there, that many people, both children and adults, never 
get this theological base systematically laid in their lives. That's my fear. So much of our, edu- our theological education is haphazard. And, and catechesis is the antithesis of haphazard ministry. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who, as you know, ministered at New Park Street Chapel for 38 years, uh, after being pastor there for two years, he, he wrote his own catechism based on two others, Westminster and the Baptist Catechism, and he, he, he then introduced it to his church. And in his introduction to, to the catechism, he wrote this. This is just typical Spurgeon. I am persuaded that the use of a good catechism in our families will be a great safeguard against the increasing errors of the times. And therefore, I have compiled this little manual from the Westminster Assemblies and the Baptist Catechisms for the use of my own church and congregation. Those who use it in their families or classes... Now, what classes? He's talking about adult Sunday school. Now, I don't want to get into a methodology discussion today. That's a whole other big discussion. Just interesting there. That may be something we could re-look at. Adult Sunday school. Those who use it in their families and classes must labor to explain the sense. But the words should be carefully learned by heart, for they will be understood better as years pass. I want to tell you, that is one of the greatest statements on Christian education I have ever read. That is the epitome of pastoral wisdom. They will be understood better as the years pass. David said in Psalm 119, Your word have I hidden in my heart so that I may not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart. It's buried in there deep in my heart and in my mind so that when I'm living my life later and temptation strikes me, that which I've buried in my heart, which my parents buried in my heart, will come out and I will not sin against you. Full comprehension Full comprehension of theological truth does not have to precede memorization of theological truth. No, it does not. Spurgeon goes on to say, "May May the Lord bless my dear friends and their families forevermore, is the prayer of their loving pastor. And then he quotes 2 Timothy 2, study, show yourself approved. Okay, so why do catechisms work? Many answers to that question, but let me just offer a few. Firstly, catechisms start the right discussions. A catechism is not a bare bare question and answer sheet. Spurgeon, in fact, there he says, he he said, um, those who use it must labor to explain the sense. Every question in the catechism elicits the right discussion. I want to illustrate that uh, to you from a a little example from my own family. About three years ago, uh, at the time my children were 10, 8, and 7 years old, um, I taught my kids a a large chunk of an old Presbyterian catechism called the New Catechism. And uh, question 48 of the New Catechism says this... (coughs) How did Christ fulfill the covenant of grace? The answer, of course, Christ obeyed the whole law for his people and then suffered the punishment due for their sins. Now, in that little Q&A, there is a whole world of theology. There's redemptive history. 
the covenants of Scripture. There's the active and passive obedience of Christ, both. And I remember having a wonderful discussion at home with the kids about the wonders of our salvation and what Christ has done for us. That it's not only the passive obedience of Christ that Jesus died for our sins, which, yes, he did. He suffered the punishment due for our sins. But there's a whole other part of, of the life of Jesus that also is counted in our behalf. It's not just that we're forgiven and now we're back up to sort of ground zero with God. Okay, you're forgiven, but you need now. No. 33 years of an obedient life and every good thing that he did, things that we haven't done at school, with mom and dad, with your friends on the sports field, all the good things that Jesus would have done in those situations is credited to our account, is given to us as if we did it. The active obedience of Christ. So that when God looks out of heaven and he sees you, because you're in Christ, he says, this is my beloved son, Luke, my son. In whom I'm well pleased. He's actually thrilled with you. Because of the act of obedience of Christ. So can you see. One little catechism question. Brings out the right discussions. So in the actual warmth of family life. Sitting around the table after dinner. And kicking the dog. And, and a glass of wine. And a vintage light. And, a, and you know, kids getting distracted. And. Brother punching his sister. Within the warmth of family life. Bible reading. And catechisms. They provide a daily space. In which dad can sit with his kids. And give them his full attention. And kids will ask questions. And they will raise objections. And you'll be amazed. The kind of questions the children ask. Theologically deep questions. This whole thing leads a family into a, a nightly discipleship space. And although I'm trying desperately to avoid the methodology discussion today, because it's another, that's kind of next step. The one thing I do want to say on methodologies that I think we could do a lot better as churches is to empower our parents to conduct good family devotions with their children at home. And we can give them great tools. And I think a good family devotion must include, along with prayer, systematic Bible reading, and the use of a catechism. Uh, J.I. Packer says this, and evangel As evangelical Christian educators, we see catechesis as integral to the all-age Christian nurture that every congregation should be practicing. Together, we mourn its eclipse, perceiving this as the deepest root of the immaturity that is so widespread in evangelical circles. And we unite in seeking the recognition, restoration, and indeed enhancement of it as a basic discipline of the Christian life. You know, one of the main objections to the use of, of, of catechisms, if we can address this, is that catechesis is a, is a form of indoctrination, you know, that, that, that sort of Catholic thing. But anybody that raises that objection, that catechisms are indoctrinating people, I think they're profoundly naive, although the, it may come from a, a sort of pure enough motive that the objection, they're completely naive about how much our children and the new converts that are coming into our churches and our existing members are being catechized by the culture that we live in. 
We keep a, a pretty strict control on the media content of our home. We don't have TV. We've never had TV. Since the day Danielle and I got married, we've never had TV. Our children don't know what it is to have TV in our house. Now, we've got one of the biggest TVs known to mankind, but it's got a DVD player, and that's it. We control what content comes into the house. We, we, we're very tight with like, um, YouTube and all that stuff, so social media. We hardly listen to public radio, maybe a little bit on the, in, the, in the car on the road to school. But we, we're pretty tight on it. But I'm amazed when we go to like a, a public place, like Ratanga Junction or a school fair or something where there's contemporary music playing over the loudspeakers. And I watch my kids and they sing along with the music. And I, and I, I ask myself, how do they know the words? Where do they learn that? Now, I'm not, I'm not being alarmist and I'm not being a fundamentalist. We don't homeschool, and I know some of you homeschool, but just, we, our kids are at like a public school. So let that just illustrate you. We're not like the fundamental, you know, separate from culture. No, we know you can't separate from the culture. But let me say this. If I, as a father who loves my children, if I am concerned... When my children are singing certain lyrics of certain songs that are ungodly, if I'm concerned of the negative impact of sexualized lyrics or, or foul language in music or violent rap music, if I am concerned by the, the, the effect of that stuff going into their heads and sealing itself in the memories of my children, even though they don't really understand what they're singing, they're just singing along with it. If I'm concerned about that, then why on earth when we have the great doctrines of the Bible, when I want to get my kids to memorize the great doctrines of the Bible, am I told that that's lifeless brainwashing? That, that we have to be scared of the negative side, but it has no positive power when you do it on the positive side. Well, all I can say is, me, as for me and my house, I reject that. <clears throat> well, passionately. To a large extent, language frames our world. Language frames the world we live in. And it, it, it frames our experience of the world. Teaching children and adults, for that matter, a vocabulary with which to talk about God and themselves and the world is an extremely important thing. By the time our children reach their teenage years, ideally, I think our children must have the ability to express in words what they believe. They should be able to express in words what the Bible teaches about the person and being of God. They should be able to express verbally what they believe about Scripture, about its nature and its function, about the dignity of man as we were created. They should be able to express in words what sin is and what sin has done, the miserable state into which man has fallen and in which we find ourselves. They must be able to express in their own vocabulary, their own words, what sin is, what repentance from sin is. Words about Christ and salvation. Words about God's covenant dealings through history. Words about the meaning of history itself. Words about the church and the sacraments. Words about judgment and hell and heaven. You know, we can't get these truths into their hearts, but God expects us to get it into their minds and into their mouths. Don't let this depart from your mouth. And for good reason. Listen to 
the reference in your notes is wrong. This is actually Tim Keller who said this. Such instruction, Princeton theologian Archibald Alexander said, is like firewood in a fireplace. Without the fire, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, firewood will not itself produce a warming flame. But without the fuel, there can be no fire either. And that is what catechetical instruction is. I told you that story as I started today. My son. Where, where did my son's comment come from about that little video? When I said, oh, this video is corrupt. And, and out of his mouth popped, uh, in every part of its being. Where, where did that vocabulary come from? Well, I said to you, two to three years ago, I, I taught my kids a large chunk of that Presbyterian Catechism, and I've reproduced questions 37 to 39 in your manual, and these were part of what we learned. This is the catechism, the little section on sin. Question 37. What effect did the sin of Adam have on all people? Answer, we are all born guilty and sinful. Well, you think of all the theology in that. We're not just born sinful, we're born guilty already in Adam. We are guilty before we personally sin. So much there. Question 38. How sinful are you by nature, Luke? And night after night, Luke would go, I am corrupt in every part of my being. <laughs> Question 39. What is the sinful nature that we inherit from Adam called? Answer, original sin. And then two to three years later, not having reviewed it in the interim, my nine-year-old Luke is looking over my shoulder. I say a video is corrupt and out of his mouth pops in every part of its being. And I am not one bit ashamed that I have somehow lifelessly brainwashed him. My job is to teach him and to pray for him. And it will be the Holy Spirit that brings to life the truth that I have hidden in his heart. The Holy Spirit will set alight the kindling that I have laid. Now listen to me. That can be done with adults as well. Adults who, who perhaps didn't get this as children as I didn't. If we're honest, some, maybe many of the people in our church have never got this. It's not too late. We can do it. We all know what the chief end of man is. I asked you, you all knew the answer. And I mean, wouldn't you agree? That's an amazing piece of theology to have a, have a Bible study or to, to discuss with a child. But how many of us know what the other 106 questions are? Because where does that come from? That's the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And there are 106 other questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that are equally as powerful, as heart-delighting, as God-glorifying, and as didactically powerful as question one is. Just look at question number two. I think I've reproduced that in your manual. So the, end, the chief end of man is, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Question two, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? And the answer, the Word of God contained in the, old, uh, in, in the Scriptures, contained in the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. It is the Scriptures that teach us how to enjoy and glorify God. Imagine a Bible study on that. So anybody that says catechisms are dry have never read a catechism. Okay, some 
a, a few concluding statements, and then if I can be as cheeky as to maybe suggest some potential ways forward. I've said to you that the Great Commission, in, in that, Jesus commands us to make disciples. And that that is done by teaching people all the things that I've commanded you. Now that raises certain questions. And I've raised with you basically two questions today that the Great Commission itself raises. And, and I don't think... Perhaps it, it, it may be so. But some people, pastors, churches, in, in our broader charismatic non-denominational circles, I, I think maybe we, we could have done a better job at answering these two questions. The, the first question, how? If, if we are commanded to, to make disciples by teaching, how do we decide and, and communicate what we believe that Doctrine, that body of doctrine constitutes. What, what is it that establishes people as disciples? What do we teach? And, and I've said to you that historically, the, the Protestants of the re time of the Reformation have answered that question in a far more comprehensive way than we have in our circles. They weren't afraid to make big calls on contentious issues and put them on paper. You know, you just have to, to read through some of these, these fantastic old confessions of faith. Even the 39 articles of the Church of England, that's an incredible statement of faith. You, you read through some of these of the Westminster Confession. I mean, that is an amazing statement. You don't agree with everything in it, of course not, but it's amazing. It will inspire you to new heights of the, the theological expression of what you believe. Let's read um, Charles Donahue. He wrote a, a good book called Making Kingdom Disciples. So Donahue says this. The basic process of making disciples must include an understanding of the system of truth taught in the Bible. We want each believer to understand from the very beginning that what we believe is based on what the Bible says. And while the Bible is not a systematic textbook, no, yet it does give us truths that form a system of truth that does not contradict itself but hangs together as one whole message. That understanding is essential to know what we believe and why. And is key to being able to articulate those beliefs when given the opportunity. Okay, so that's the first question raised by the Great Commission. What constitutes the faith? The faith. Second question. How do we then teach this body of doctrine to our children, to our new converts, and to those existing members who, if we're honest, still need it? And as we look into church history, I've suggested to you that certainly it's not the only tool, but by far the most commonly used tool throughout the Protestant era has been a catechism. Because it is relational. It brings people together. It is consistent in its theology. It engages the learner verbally. It brings out the relation between the doctrines. Because a catechism has a train of thought as you proceed. 
It engages the memory. It teaches Christians a Christian vocabulary. And it elicits conversations between the parent and the child, between the teacher and the student, between the pastor and the flock. That great old um, Anglican theologian T.F. Torrance, if you've ever read anything about Torrance, one of the most incredibly deep thinkers, he wrote this, and I'm, and I'm coming to a, a close here. This is one of the most profound pieces of writing you will ever read. Speaking of catechisms, he says this. It is an important step in any branch of scientific research to learn to ask the right questions. Christianity does not set out to answer man's questions. If it did, it would only give him what he already desires to know and has secretly determined how he will know it. Christianity is above all the question that the truth puts to man at every point in his life. Now concentrate. So that it teaches him to ask the right, the true questions about himself and to form on his lips the questions which the truth by its own nature puts to him to ask of the truth itself so that it may disclose or reveal itself to him. Now the catechism is designed to do just this. And it is therefore an invaluable method in instructing the young learner. For it not only trains him to ask the right questions, but it trains him to allow himself to be questioned by the truth. And so to have questions put into his mouth, which he could not think up on his own. And which therefore call into question his own preconceptions. In other words, it is an event of real impartation of truth. That is profound. Okay, so I don't think we've answered these two questions well in, in, in our neck of the woods. What is that faith and how do we teach it systematically to every age group population within our church? Lay this base of theological knowledge. Now, a couple of suggestions, and these obviously won't be a surprise, but let me just wrap it up. First, I, I propose that we could perhaps benefit from drafting more comprehensive statements of faith for our churches. Statements which the elders are happy, illustrate, reflect, communicate that whole counsel of God, that body of Christian doctrine which is the truth which establishes Christians. Um, Parrot and Kang. Uh, so this is Gary Parrot, the guy that wrote the book with, with J.I. Packer. He wrote another book with a guy called Steve Kang. They're professors together somewhere in Canada, I think. And they wrote this book, Teaching the Faith, Forming the Faithful. And in that they say this. It is critical to have prospective members study the church's statement of faith. It is surprising that some churches have no such statement. This may be part of a trending toward the downplaying of propositional belief systems. But this seems a tragic mistake. Such a statement is both constructive and protective. It is constructive in the sense that it is a positive teaching tool available for all to see, study, and consider. 
It is protective or preservative in that it provides a basis for evaluating potential threats in the form of heresy or less severe forms of deviant teaching. Part of the membership covenant should involve affirmation of the teachings of the church. Without a statement of those beliefs, any such affirmation will obviously prove difficult. All right, so that's my, my first tentative suggestion. And then secondly, I believe that we do need a, a systematic, consistent methodology of how to teach this statement once we have it to our children, to our new converts, and to many of our existing members who may need it. And uh, my suggestion is that, that, that perhaps a first step towards a holistic theological education program in our churches could be the development or adoption of a catechism, both an adult's and a children's version. And I think the New City Catechism, if any of you went onto the website and had a look at it, it's a fantastic resource. We may want to add a few questions about charismatic baptism of the Spirit or, or uh, credo, believer's baptism. But... I'm busy going through that with my kids at the moment. We've been doing it for the last month or so, and we're on question seven already, and having a lot of fun doing it. Um, actually, a great little resource, if you go onto the New City Catechism website, for each question on the adult version, um, there's, a, there's a short three or four minute video by some eminent theologian. Kevin DeYoung does the one, John Piper does the other one, D.A. Carson does another one, etc. It's the most amazing little resource that they've put together. Go and have a look at it. Okay, finally, let me, let me say this. If you do reject these two suggestions of mine, the statement of faith and the, and the catechism thing, at least what I've said to you today, at least let it do this. Let it get you asking those two questions. Just asking them in a new and a fresh way for your church. What is it that we believe? And how do we strategically, methodologically teach this to every person in our church? I think those are two great Question. So if someone gets saved in your church, what do you do with them? You know, someone, if we see revival and we cry out to God for revival, if we see revival, multitudes of both men and women will be added to the church. But what are we going to do with them? What are we going to teach them? If I can be honest with you, I don't think we've done a very good job of that. Yes, we will... You know, get them onto our foundations class. I'll get connected, whatever you call your foundations class, over a weekend. Yes. Yes, we will teach them about, you know, having a quiet time and Bible reading and prayer. Yes, we will, you know, encourage them to join a, a home group and come to Sunday and start listening to preaching. Yes, we'll lay our hands on them so they can receive the baptism of the Spirit. If that's something you're into, we'll do it. We will prophesy over them. Yes, we, I'm not saying that we stop doing any of those things. Those are all great. But regarding the most fundamental task of disciple-making, teaching them the great doctrines of the Bible, teaching them all that I've commanded you, when God adds multitudes of both men and women and their children to our churches, what are we going to teach them and how? Please just ask those questions in a fresh and a new way. I want to close with the words of Pekka. What might Paul think of the state of affairs in too many of our churches today, with pastors who do not regard teaching as a central feature of their ministries, 
and with other church leaders who are largely ignorant of the faith that they have been charged to pass on to others. May God grant it, uh, may God grant to those of us in such leadership roles a spirit of repentance to take up a serious ministry of teaching once again. Returning to a vigorous, to, uh, returning to a vision of rigorous catechesis will go a long way towards such a course correction. Thank you for your patience and time with me. Patience with me. So rather than taking a break, let's go straight to the questions. He's asked questions, and let's not do it in a big forum where one or two pick holes and, and make uh, observations. But let's, let's get into people.